I had been back in Chicago for less than three months when I heard the sandhill cranes overhead. I was both instantly sure of what I was hearing and also completely confused. One of the ways we marked the years in Gainesville, Florida, where I had just moved back from, was by the arrival of the cranes in late fall and their departure in midwinter. They left, I knew, to fly back home to their breeding grounds in places like Wisconsin and Michigan, but somehow I had never expected to hear them here in the city. That raucous, prehistoric trill that can carry for miles. If you haven't heard them, you should go on YouTube and listen. That sound had become synonymous for me with certain spots in North Florida, with a certain season, a feeling in the air some relief from the humidity, the knowledge that Christmas was coming or that spring was just around the corner. That sound pulled me back into beloved spots like Payne's Prairie, the the state park at the south end of town, where hundreds or thousands of cranes gather every winter to dance and to feed. It took me to the sheer delight of being surrounded by them out on this observation deck about this tall, out on the middle of the prairie at the end of Lachua Trail. These giant birds just everywhere you look, beautiful and strange. And now three months after leaving all of that, sitting in our office here in the church tower right through that wall, writing a sermon, I went to the stained glass windows and pushed them out the six inches that they open, letting this chilly blast of December air in and trying to kind of crick my neck to see if I could find the birds, which I couldn't. And I listened to that same sound, somehow audible over the city noise, and I listened both certain and still disbelieving until I went to the computer and I found an article published just the day before saying 30,000 cranes had been counted flying over Chicago the last morning. And when I knew without a doubt it was them, I started to cry. Not like a polite tear rolling down one cheek, but like big, ugly sobs. The sound that had been such a joy to me in Gainesville now hurt just as much. All the good memories it brought up for me were of things that I had left behind. All the people whose faces came flooding back when I heard them were people I had had to say goodbye to over the last six months through these same heaving tears. The pain of my homesickness at hearing the cranes was in direct proportion to the delight I had always felt for them in the past. It was exactly because it delighted me so much then that it hurt so much now. That's how it is with grief. As Rebecca preached a couple weeks ago, grief is love squaring off against its oldest enemy. The pain we feel is commensurate with the love we've known. On this day, when we remember our saints, it's the things that we always treasured about our loved ones that sting most now that they're gone. The sound of my grandpa's larger-than-life voice. The taste of my grandmother's raisin bread now baked every Christmas by my cousin. 
the feel of my great-grandma's two wet kisses on my cheek as we got ready to leave each time. When I visited a congregant in the hospital where our son was born and died, I felt this strange mixture of happiness and sadness the whole time. Everything I walked by, both joyfully and painfully familiar. Growing up, almost every vacation was to Dayton, Ohio, which is not really a vacation. But that's where both sets of our grandparents lived. And from a time before I could read, I knew the signs that we were getting close to Grandma Kearney's. I could check them off as we went by. The halfway McDonald's in Richmond, the blue arch that meant we had crossed over into Ohio, and most of all, at the exit for her place on 123 East Whittier, this plant that made cement culverts. This yard of giant cement tubes that I imagine must be for some amazing playground I had never been to. It meant the interminable hour and a half from Indianapolis was almost over. We were only 10 minutes from Grandma's, from her soft hugs, from her teasing sense of humor, from the playhouse my grandfather had built in the backyard, the big black walnut tree that dropped walnuts we could throw at each other and smelled so good. The squirrels who gathered on the garage steps each morning to receive walnuts from my grandma's hand, all of the delights of grandma's house. Our first trip back after she died, I watched confused as my mom sped past that cement plant. We were headed to Easter at my Aunt Jeannie's, and I guessed there was some more direct way, but we had never once taken it before. It took a few trips back until I realized my mom was intentionally avoiding that exit, not planning to drive down East Whittier anytime soon. All the delights of Grandma's house, her parents' house, the house she had grown up in, were too painful to be reminded of now too sweet to have lost. I was in college then, so the next time I drove to Dayton, I let my mom speed past our exit, and I turned off and retraced that road that I know by heart, all of it joyfully and painfully familiar. The cranes themselves, and this is probably the time that I should just confess, I'm a birder, so to all the visitors, apologies. The cranes themselves are led by something like delight and longing, joy and pain. Bird migration is, is poorly understood or just very complex. Species seem to use combinations of different senses to get it done. Some navigate by Earth's magnetic fields, we think. Others may use a sense of smell to find their home. Some appear to be taught by their parents and others are born with an inner map to their winter feeding grounds. Sandhills make their first migratory journey with their parents, but by year two, they're expected to know where to go. These journeys of hundreds or thousands of miles, all figured out. Ornithologists are divided on how migration evolved. The northern home theory suggests that birds 
lived on their breeding grounds and then started traveling further and further south to find food in the winter. The southern home theory says they lived in the tropics and traveled further and further north to find safe places to breed. Were the birds I heard in our office going home to Gainesville, or were the birds we always said goodbye to in Gainesville around Valentine's Day headed back home up here? Or is home just a human concept that we've applied to a species whose life is movement and migration and searching? That search is led in part by the delight of plentiful food. For a large bird like a crane, having reliable stopovers on the journey are essential. So each year, the cranes gather in the thousands in places like Jasper Pulaski Wildlife Refuge just across the Indiana border. Or Kearney, Nebraska, where half a million cranes are streaming through right now stopping to tank up for the long journey from the Arctic to Texas. It's hard to imagine that these familiar spots to which the birds have been returning for thousands of years don't hold something like joy for tired, hungry birds finally able to eat their fill as they head in whichever direction home is. But the delight of food is only part of the equation. There's also in all migrating birds a kind of longing written into them, a desire to move on, to keep going. It was first observed in pet birds, and we're getting close to the end of the bird part, I promise, but it was first observed in pet birds who would exhibit this strange behavior every fall and spring. For a few weeks, they get anxious and jumpy, and they fly repeatedly toward one side of the cage. Though they have all the food they need, though they are living in temperate indoors, though the length of the days are no longer measured by the sunrise and sunset, something in them, something deep and ancient, tells them to move on. The Germans, of course, have a word for it. Sug und Ruhe, migratory restlessness. The same thing happens in the wild, actually. As migration approaches, birds can be seen repeatedly jumping from their perches at night, responding to something in them that is telling them to go, to move on, to leave for another place, sometimes a place they have never seen. Researchers have even located a chemical in their brain that tells birds who have landed in a comfortable spot, surrounded by food, to stop eating and keep going. There's a message written in their DNA, a restlessness, a longing for home. The prophet Jeremiah delivers this message from God to the people. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their hearts. I will write it within them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Through Jeremiah, God promises to write the divine law in the hearts of the people, to give them, in some poorly understood or complex way, a sense of the world as God imagines it life as God would have it. 
They will no longer need to be taught directions, what God wants and what God doesn't by someone else. They will have this kind of inner map of the city of God inside them, the place from which they come and the place to which they will return. And we are the inheritors of that map. As God's people, we don't have to wait for an expert to tell us. You don't have to wait for me to tell you. No, God. The way of God is in our bones, deep and ancient, joyfully and painfully familiar. Our theme this month is Take Delight. We're talking about the spirituality of things that delight us and of our capacity for delight in the first place. It's not a topic that necessarily gets brought up a lot at church, in my experience. Historically, the church has often ignored delight or usually vilified it. It has separated us off from this sense of delight or twisted that sense, telling us we should delight in things that don't really delight us and not delight so much in things that really delight us. I think that's wrong. I think Jeremiah's prophecy says it's wrong. I believe that our delight, our true delight, is part of what it means to have God's law written on our hearts. When we're struck with wonder, with beauty, with joy, when we are delighted by something in our lives, it is a sign that we are on the right track, moving toward the world as God imagines it. That sense of delight has been placed in us like a north star by which we can measure our trajectory and make course corrections. Like a magnetic field, it attracts us toward what is good and right and holy, not what someone else says is good and right and holy, but what we know in our bones. And then there's the other side of the coin, the longing, the homesickness, the anxiety that things in our world are not as they should be. The sting of injustice, the affront of poverty, our revulsion at war and violence, they also point the way. They let us know when we've strayed from our paths, make it clear we still have a long way to go before we make it home. They ensure we don't settle down in some comfortable spot and forget where we're headed. God has written a vision of that home in our hearts, a vision of the world as God dreams it, as God created it, as God still intends it to be. And the pain we feel when we create suffering or when we see others create suffering, that pain is just the flip side of our delight. It's just grief for all the goodness and justice and beauty that we're missing, that could be. God has placed in us our own tsug unrua, an anxiety to keep moving toward a home we cannot quite remember, but that is written in us. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We are creatures made for delight, made for a world of goodness and justice and beauty. We are made to rest in a paradise of God's creation. It is a vision joyfully and painfully familiar, even if we have never seen it with our eyes. 
joyfully in the delight we feel at those moments where we draw close enough to see it in our family and our friends, in total strangers, in prehistoric red-headed birds, and painfully in longing at those moments when we measure the distance between where we are and where we're headed. We're built for love and grief. And it's in that loving and grieving that we move slowly and clumsily, losing our way and course-correcting, finding rich spots for rest and nourishment. It's by that delight and longing that God leads us hungry and tired and full and rested, finally, home.